Am I on? Doesn't sound like it. That those speak. There we go. Okay. Uh, announcements. One of the um, main announcements that y'all ought to can seriously consider is that this year we're having the 29th annual pre-trib study group meeting. So that's significant, almost 30 years. And the, to- the topic is just with our eye on the sky, according to the brochure, you can go to the pre-trib.org website to get information. But it looks like a very good, very solid um, set of speakers this year, and I'm particularly looking forward to a number of them. And um, there's one by uh, Scott Annual where he's de- he's a solid dispensationalist, and he's going to focus on a traditional dispensational philosophy of the church and cultural engagement. Now, that's an important topic, and he handled it very well because Darby considered it a sin to even vote. And cultural disengagement was a prominent view of most dispensationalists through the 19th century. And I'm going to touch on that a little bit tonight. But uh, Scott does a great job dealing with that in, in that particular paper. There's another one by Dr. Tim Chafee, who's written a book on the sons of God and the Nephilim. And he will be presenting his paper. He's with uh, Answers in Genesis. And then Bill Watson, we've seen before, where he's looking at dispensationalism before the Reformation. And that's going to be good. So there's a couple of different papers that are dealing with those kinds of things. And then Mark Hitchcock, who's written a book on this, is going to do a presentation on the corona crisis, plagues, pandemics, and the coming apocalypse. So it's going to be good. The dates are December 7th to the 9th, uh, 2020, and it will be live and it won't will not be live streamed because we just don't have the capacity and the technology there to to do that so uh put that on your on your calendar december seventh uh, to ninth to the ninth trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. We'll begin with a few moments of silent prayer. We need to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. Uh, confess sin if necessary, and instantly we are forgiven of those sins, cleansed of all unrighteousness, and restored to where we are to walk by the Holy Spirit. So after a few moments of silent prayer, then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that you, in your grace, have made it possible for us to live in this nation. We're thankful for the freedoms that we enjoy that are uh, 
and, and the recognition of our unalienable rights that are given to us as those who are in your image and likeness. They are recognized by the state, by the government, but they are ours inherently due to your the way in which you created us. Father, we pray for this nation that there are such enemy forces at work. There are spiritual forces. Satan is alive and well and having a heyday in this nation. And, Father, there are these numerous organizations, not the front organizations that most people talk about, but there are organizations that are behind them, numerous extreme leftist Marxist organizations that desire to destroy this country and destroy the Christian impact that this country still has. If they got into power, they will uh, attack the freedom to worship, the freedom to preach the truth. If they get into office, there are many things that they are going to do to attempt to shut down the proclamation of the gospel. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, continue to protect us, continue to provide for leaders that will enable us to be protected, to appoint judges, justices that will uh recognize what the Constitution says and preserve our freedoms. Father, as we study, continue our study on how should we then vote, we pray that you would help us to understand the Judeo-Christian foundations of this nation and how that must continue if we are to enjoy any measure of true liberty and freedom. We pray that you might enlighten us tonight in these areas. In Christ's name, amen. We are covering the sixth divine institution on Israel, and tonight is our third night on Israel, third lesson on Israel, and it's more history, uh, developing the, looking at the development of the pro-Israel U.S. relationship. Uh, this is very important for a nation to be philo-Semitic, that is, to love the Jewish people, to love Israel. That doesn't mean you have to agree with everything that Israel does. doesn't mean you have to uh, agree with everything that uh, Jewish people do. But it means that we recognize they are still God's people, that they are still under the Abrahamic covenant, and that God's promises in the Abrahamic covenant are still in effect. And so tonight I want to show you why this is foundational to uh, to the United States of America, to our culture, to our history, uh, to our political system. We have seen the, under these this discussion of the divine institution that these are the foundations for social order. And Psalm 11.3, if the foundations are destroyed, if we do away with these foundations, and this is the goal of the underlying Marxist socialist philosophy that is energizing the, the, the left. I want to say the far left, but because I know there's still Democrats who don't get it yet, that they've lost their party, that, that just being liberal is, doesn't work anymore. You have to be a radical leftist, and that is what is energizing and pushing and promoting uh, all of these things that are coming out of the left. 
And next week I'm going to talk about Marxism in more detail than I did earlier in this series as kind of an addendum because as we all notice this year 2020 has just been crazy and we're seeing things happening in this country. We need to, uh, as a, a, as Christians, we need to understand these trends in the world around us. If scripture says don't be conformed to the world, we have to understand what conforming to the world means. And we have to be able to think clearly and objectively. And as I have pointed out uh, throughout this series, the important thing about um, voting and the decision making that that we have to that we have to make when it comes to selecting leaders, it's it's it doesn't matter what their personality is. In fact, if you vote for personality, don't vote. If you vote based on skin color, don't vote. If you vote on anything other than principle, understanding the history of this nation and voting to continue the uh, traditions, the uh, legal history, the foundations and the Constitution, if you vote for any other reason than to sustain that, then don't vote because you don't understand the seriousness of the situation. So we have these divine institutions, and they are six the first three, as we've seen again and again, promote productivity and civilization, their individual responsibility, marriage, and family. Marxism targets all three. We'll see that next time. Rejects all three. The next two are come after the fall. They come after the flood. They are designed to restrain sin, and that is the establishment of government and a just judiciary and the establishment of independent nation states. And then sixth is God's calling out of Israel to be a blessing through them that he will bless all mankind, and that ultimately comes through the Savior, Jesus Christ. But there are many other ways that we are blessed. They are the custodians of Scripture, and it's through the Scriptures that we understand these principles that are necessary to establish a a social order that uh, that promotes uh, stability promotes uh, happiness and promotes uh, prosperity. As we look at Israel, the foundation for understanding it as a divine institution is in Genesis chapter uh, 12, verses 1 through 3, where God uh, orders uh, Abraham to leave his country and to take him to a land uh, that he will show him. Undergirding this is the whole divine institution number five of, of nations. He is in a land that is his country. That means it is different from other lands that are not his country. That implies borders. God says in verse 2, he will make him a great nation. This is the first time you have the word nation in this kind of, with this word, with this meaning. And God says that, that actually this should be translated, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. Be a blessing. It's a command to be a blessing, and through Abraham and his descendants, through his son uh, Isaac and then uh, Jacob, that the blessing would come to the world. And then God promises, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. That isn't conditioned upon the spiritual status of whoever is blessing Israel or cursing Israel. If they are a... Um, non-binary, gender-confused uh, person who is uh, sexually amorphous, then it doesn't matter if they if they love Israel. God is going to bless them. If they hate Israel, the opposite. 
uh, God will bring judgment on them. It doesn't matter if they're a Buddhist, if they're a Hindu. It doesn't matter if they have long hair, short hair, poor, uneducated, uh, whether they are idiots or whether they are brilliant. But if they uh, don't don't like Israel, God's going to curse them. If they're a Christian, if they love the Lord and love the, their Bible and they still are anti-Semitic, then God is going to curse them. So this is a promise for any that relates to any person, any culture, any nation, regardless of their spiritual status. This is for uh, everyone. So I raised the question last week, what is Zionism and why is Zionism important? And first of all, it's the belief that the Jewish people have a right to their own nation, just like any other people, just like the Serbs, just like the uh, British, just like the French, just like the Germans, just like the Afghanis. Uh, Every people have a right to their own land and to their own borders and to defend uh, their existence. And so uh, we then ask the question, what does it mean to support Israel and the Jews? And basically, it we have to define it negatively first. It doesn't mean that you have to like the decisions that they make or approve the decisions that they make, agree with their policies or their elections or whatever the uh, prime minister or president of Israel is saying at a particular time. Uh, that's not what it means to support Israel. It doesn't mean that you endorse their political decisions. It does mean... Uh, or, and it doesn't mean that we affirm their religious or their non-religious views, but it does mean that we agree that the Jewish people are still God's chosen people and that they have a right to their own nation in the land God gave to Abraham and that the modern state of Israel has the right to defend its borders against external enemies and to defend itself internally against the incursions of terrorists. And as a nation, they have the same rights and privileges as any other nation. There is to be no uh, double standard. Now, last time I put this chart up on the board because it's important to remember this. This is a timeline of church history. It starts in 33, which is when Jesus was crucified, and the church was born 50 days after that Passover on Pentecost. Pentecost means 50, uh, has to do with 50 days, and this is the birth of the church. Uh, the Early and medieval church are the first two stages. Then we have the modern church, which begins after the Protestant Reformation. Roman Catholic Church begins after 600. So you only have the Roman Catholic Church, which has a non-literal interpretation. So from roughly about two to 300 A.D. until 1517, everything is defined in terms of allegorical interpretation which means that with some exceptions, there's nobody thinking in terms of a pre-millennial view of history. Therefore, there's nobody thinking about God restoring Israel to the land. They are into what is called replacement uh, theology. Once you get into the post-Protestant Reformation period, uh, develops many other denominations, the most biblically consistent developed by the end of the 1600s with a literal interpretation. So let's just compare interpretation. In the early church, it's mostly literal. Israel means Israel. It refers to when you read Israel in the Bible, it means ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
If you read the word church, it means the church. It means that which was given birth to by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost 33 and will end with the rapture before the tribulation. And that there is, there are God's promises to Israel to bring them back to the land, restore them to the land, and to give them the king that is a descendant of David who will rule forever from his throne, a Davidic throne in Jerusalem. And that hasn't happened yet, so God must uh, fulfill that in the future. So there will be a future return of ethnic Jews to their historic homeland where they will, as a regenerate people, eventually in the future, they will have an eternal kingdom. In the Middle Ages, you had allegorical interpretation where Israel meant the church in the Old Testament and the church meant spiritual Israel in the New Testament. And so what is lost is the importance of the Jewish people. So this is the soil out of which anti-Semitism will grow. And it starts with allegorical interpretation, a few other things. By the late 200s, by the late 3rd century, uh, this develops. Or Actually, excuse me, by the late 2nd century, that by the late 100s, you start seeing this develop. It, it blossoms in the 200s in the 3rd century, and it becomes institutionalized under uh, the influence of Augustine by the um, 4th century, uh, late 4th, 4th century. And in this view, Israel per- is permanently replaced by the church. And this gave a, it doesn't necessitate uh, uh, anti-Semitism, but it gives a rationale for anti-Semitism, which grows in the Middle Ages. All right, it, after the Protestant Reformation, there's a return to literal interpretation Israel, again, in literal interpretation, refers to ethnic Israel. The church refers to the church. And there's a restoration of the belief of a future return to Israel. And it is primarily energized within England, within Britain. And so it is referred to in the early stages as British Restorationism. But British Restorationism is what gives birth to Christian Zionism. If you want a good book on Christian Zionism, then uh, Tommy Ice has written a book called The Case for Zionism, the Why Christians Should Support Israel. And this came out a couple of years ago, and he answers all the basic questions there. The Case for Zionism by uh, The Case for Zionism, Why Christians Should Support Israel by Tommy Ice. Another interesting book that came along a little over 10 years ago by uh, uh, Goldman, uh, uh, Shlomo Goldman, I believe, is his first name, writes that until the late 19th century, most plans for a Jewish entity in Palestine were Christian. That's really interesting. He's the first guy to come along as a Jewish scholar and recognize the interconnections between Christian Zionism and Jewish Zionism. This book came out, I can't remember now, maybe 2009. I had already been giving lectures on how these these uh, intertwined before that, but he was the first one to really, really uh, focus on, on that because what you had before that, or what you still have, is the Jews are taught about Jewish Zionism and the Christians are taught about Christian Zionism, but nobody puts them together. Now, it's important to put together. I've given that talk here. I'm not going to do that uh, tonight but we're going to we're going to run through that 
So what we see here is that the, the influence of Christian Zionists is such that it stimulates Jews to want to go back to their historic homeland, uh, which I, I find to be uh, absolutely, uh, absolutely fascinating. He writes, um, also writes that scores of Christians advance plans for settlement in Palestine. Now that's important because I've heard some people who have commented to me and said, well, this is a self-fulfilling prophecy. And, and it's part of this, this story that comes out that the reason Christians want to support Israel is to try to, uh, try to speed up prophecy so Jesus will come back, which is the biggest bunch of nonsense you ever heard, uh, because nothing that we can do is going to change God's timetable. I mean, that, that's the basic reality. There's not anything we can do to speed it up or slow it down. The Lord's going to return at the rapture when the Lord's going to return at the rapture, and it's not conditioned on any particular human uh, human factors. But so the reality is that through history, as Goldman uh, observes, he says scores of Christians advanced plans for settlement in Palestine over the centuries, and they never worked. Because it wasn't going to be, they weren't going to work until God said it was time to prepare things for the Jewish people to return. Just because human beings make a plan and say, oh, let's try to get the Jews back to the land, doesn't mean God's going to enable it. And so uh, this idea that that this is just a self-fulfilling prophecy. The other thing that they throw in there is that this is the result of Darby, and I'll talk about that in just a second. Today it's popular among the growing number of anti-Zionists outside of the church as well as the uh, anti-Zionists within evangelicalism, and that number is growing. That number is growing primarily because uh, nobody's being taught the Bible anymore. The number of young people, those under 45, that are not pro-Israel is growing because they didn't grow up in church. What we're seeing is uh, a, a... the, the same thing that happened in England at the beginning of the 20th century. Because I had a, I was taking a course on conversational Hebrew, uh, 12 or 14 years ago now. I can't remember when it was. 2008, maybe. Yeah, somewhere in there. And there was a Israeli guy in the, in the course, our Jewish guy, and he's moving to Israel. And he asked me, he said, well, why do you say that the British loved the Jews. How can you say that? He said, and he's thinking in terms of everything that's happened in the 20s and 30s and how Britain became pro-Arab instead of pro-Jews, pro-Israel. And I said, well, you have to understand what happened is all of the major leaders who gave, whose influence brought forth the Balfour Declaration, which we'll talk about if we get there tonight, all the major uh, Politicians grew up at their mother's knee being told and read the stories of the Bible. And so because they heard these stories of the Bible, they had a positive view of the Jews and they had a positive view of Israel. And most of these men in the, um, uh, in, in the British Parliament and in the war cabinet in, in the uh, time of World War I w- w- grew up before 
18, what was it, 1859, when Darwin published Origin of Species. They grew up listening to the Bible. But those who came into power after them in the 20s all grew up listening to Darwin. And so they didn't have a love for the Bible or a love for the Jewish people. So, so what you read to your children matters. And it changes, it changes the nation. And that's what happened. So that the generation that came up behind Balfour, uh, or is a generation that was uh, pro-Arab. And so that's important. Uh, there are three things that are usually said, false claims that are made against Christian Zionists. The first is that uh, the evangelicals simply want all the Jews to return to the land so Jesus will return. And I mentioned that already. I have never heard that from any evangelical, but I have heard Jews very... This rumor goes through the Jewish community like crazy and and many of them believe that that's a big issue, and they'll raise that. And every time I've been at any kind of a of a meeting with with Jews talking about why evangelicals support Israel, somebody always brings that up. So I always head it off at the pass. Second thing is, there's this claim that um, that since a, a third of the, the Jews will die during the tribulation, that that evangelicals also want the death of these Jews. Now, this is a twisted view. It's partially true, partially false. Yes, a third of the Jews will die during the tribulation. But a third, that's because a third, actually more than a third of all mankind dies during the tribulation. According to Revelation, the first series of judgments or the sealed judgments, and one quarter of the earth's population are going to die. Now, if that is carried out proportionally, then that would mean that a quarter of the Jews are going to die. But it's not because they're Jews. It's just because a quarter of all humanity dies during that period of the seal judgments. And then the second round of judgments are the trumpet judgments. And a third of humanity will die. Not a third of the Jews only, but a third of humanity. And if that's proportional, then that would mean a third of the Jews would die. But we don't know that it's going to be proportional. So that's just absolutely... uh, uh, Absolutely bogus. And so these rumors or these claims are put out there in order to make evangelicals look like that behind their desires to support Israel is really just another form of anti-Semitism. So you can't trust the evangelicals. And then the third view is this view that the whole Christian Zionist movement really didn't start until after 1830, and it's the result of John Nelson Darby and dispensationalism. But anyone who knows anything about Darby in the 19th century, uh, 19th century dispensationalists, know that, that they avoided any kind of political involvement at all. There's only one dispensationalist who really gets politically involved, and that's William Blackstone. And his petition to, to the in the nation to support uh, the Jewish people's return to their homeland. We'll talk about that as we go through the go through the presentation tonight. And so uh, Darby didn't have anything to do with it. Dispensationalists were on the sidelines. In fact, British Restorationism preceded Darby by over 200 years. And he just is the, was was the latest dispensationalist or pro-Israel because that's the that's what happens if you're if you're pre if you're pre-millennial. So let's look at the historical de- development because we have to understand that the the views of the United States toward Jewish people and eventually toward Israel and the restoration of the Jewish people to Israel didn't start in the 20th century. It, it, it started in the 
1600s. It started with the Puritans that came to America from England. And so in order to understand it, we have to go back to British history and understand how this, how this developed. So I'm just going to run through this um, fairly quickly. Early England was pro-Jewish. In 1066, which is a date that you should have memorized as a kid, I remember my mother telling me I needed to memorize that date because that's when the Battle of Hastings took place and the English were defeated by the Normans and William the Conqueror uh, established himself as the King of England. And one of the things that he did was to encourage Jewish merchants and artisans in northern France and Normandy to move to England in order to strengthen the economy and to build a solid base in England. And Jews came there. Uh, they came from Germany, they came from Italy and other places where there was anti-Semitism, and they were welcomed in England. So it leads to the development of a of a Jewish, Jewish communities. They're established in London, in York, in Bristol, in Canterbury, and other key areas. But they lived in segregated areas. Now, those areas were called ghettos, but that doesn't mean it was underdeveloped, but it was just an isolated uh, area. And then the third point here is that Jews were the bankers and the money lender, lenders since usury was prohibited by the Roman Catholic Church. So in their uh, t- typical a logical inconsistency. They prohibited Christians from uh, banking, but then they would go to the Jews and pay uh, pay interest uh, to the Jewish bankers. And then the king would tax the Jewish bankers heavily. So it's just a, a, a totally corrupt system. But that's the situation up until 1144. And in 1144. If you can read that, there is the first case of blood libel in England. And blood libel is the accusation of the Jews that they make the matzah for Passover from the blood of Christian babies. Okay, and this still happens today. It's It happens, uh, it's happened recently, I mean, within our lifetime. It's happened within the last 10 or 20 years in some Muslim countries, and this constantly surfaces. But this blood libel charge was brought against Jews in Norwich, England in 1144, and it uh, inspired several anti-Jewish riots. Then you get the development of the Crusades in this period, not long after that, and that brought increased anti-Semitism. So as they... The Crusaders left England. They, they, they horrible things happened during the Crusades. They would wipe out Jewish community, just annihilate everybody, massacre everybody. It's just horrible. Following the death of Henry II, if you ever saw the film Lion in Winter, you know that was about Henry II and his wife Eleanor of Aquitaine. He's the father of Richard the Lionheart and and uh, Prince John. So following his death. He, uh, he protected Jews. Following his death, a riot in York led to the massacre of the Jews there. Uh, Richard, uh, Rich, when Richard I found out about this a day later, he ordered the Jews protected. And then when he left for the Crusades, the riots broke out again. So this is when things are going badly for the Jews in England. And anti-Semitism increased until 
finally on the ninth of Av. Now, that's an important date. That's the date when, according to Jewish tradition, that's when the first temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. Everything bad that's happened to the Jewish people has happened on the ninth of Av. There were several uh, anti-Semitic laws that were put forth by Hitler, intentionally announced on the ninth of Av to uh, just to, like, stick the knife in and twist it. And so on the 9th of Av, Edward I expelled the Jews from England, and 16,000 Jews left. Now, just a couple of comments from a couple of historians. First of all, Crawford Gribben, in a doctoral dissertation, I believe, states, the latter-day conversion of the Jews to the Christian faith was to become a staple component of subsequent Puritan eschatology. So what happens is we're, we're actually jumping. We're, uh, let me just go through this slide again. I shouldn't have hit that button. Okay, so after this you have uh, the arrival of, of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. And with that comes a return, a return to a literal interpretation of Scripture. But it's not all at once. Because the big battle at first with Luther and with Calvin and with the other first-generation reformers was over salvation, over justification by faith alone. So they are interpreting your salvation passages literally instead of allegorically. And it's not until the Reformation stabilizes by the 1540s to 1560s that uh, the second generation of reformers begins to uh, work out the, a consistent application of literal hermeneutic to, um, uh, into other areas of, of theology. So, uh, just to cover this, this period of time, what's happening is that there is, as they make this restoration to understanding that there's a literal future for the Jewish people, it's not an easy movement. Uh, there's a lot of resistance because there's still a lot of anti-Semitism and a lot of anti-Jewish interpretation, a lot of allegorical interpretation. But what is realized is that the Bible teaches that in the end times there will be a conversion of the Jewish people. They will recognize Jesus as Messiah. They will call upon the Lord to return, and Jesus will return and establish his kingdom, which is a Jewish kingdom. So Crawford Gribben, in his dissertation, makes this observation. He says, this latter-day conversion of the Jews to the Christian faith was to become a staple component of subsequent Puritan eschatology. Now, the Puritans are the conservative Christians in England. What did? Why were they called Puritans? They're called Puritans because they wanted to purify the worship of the English church of its Roman Catholic uh, holdovers. So when you go through all the Reformation fights in, in English history in the 1500s, first of all, you have Henry VIII, whose primary motive is so that he can get remarried, uh, divorce his wife, get remarried, and have children, uh, have a male, son, male heir, and that's his motivation. But, but Lutheran ideas and Calvin's ideas had already penetrated the clergy of the Church of England. And so your liberal Western civilization teachers will say that what drove the Reformation was, was Henry's 
a desire for a male heir, and that may have been what drove Henry, but it isn't what drove the Reformation, because what drove the Reformation was you already had all of these clergy who were uh, reading Luther, reading Calvin, and applying their principles to the interpretation uh, of the Word of God. And uh, the conservatives, uh, Christians in England at the time, were reacting because after Henry dies and his son Edward becomes king, which is only for a couple of years before he dies, he's Protestant. And so they bring in a fairly pure uh, Protestantism to uh, to the uh, Anglican Church, and they get rid of all of the smells and bells and the pictures of the Virgin Mary and everything else that characterizes the Roman Catholic worship. And then as soon as Edward dies... Then Mary Tudor becomes the queen, and she's called Bloody Mary because she martyrs so many Protestants and has them uh, burned at the stake. Uh, and she only lasts two or three or four years, and then she dies, and then Elizabeth becomes the queen and has to somehow reach a compromise, and in which she does. But the Puritans are the ones that maintain the conservative view of, of Scripture into the beginnings of the 1600s. So as part of their eschatology in the 1600s, um, they see a return of the Jewish people to their land. And this is not present as he goes. He says this is an expectation that is absent from the writings of the earlier reformers. Calvin's understanding was that the passage which appeared to teach the latter-day conversion of the Jews, Romans 9 to 11, only referred to, see, here it is, spiritual Israel. Okay, spiritual Israel, that's the church is spiritual Israel, so it doesn't apply to ethnic Jews. He said it only referred to spiritual Israel, not Jews, not ethnic Jews, but the elect of all ages, places, and nationalities. So this is a big change that happens with uh, among the Anglicans in the early 1600s. Michael Pregui says, the growing importance of the English Bible was a concomitant of the spreading Reformation. And it is true to say that the Reformation would never have taken hold had the Bible not replaced the Pope as the ultimate spiritual authority. That's critical. In England, the Bible becomes the ultimate authority, the authority over king, the authority over pope, the authority for every believer. And they're debating, they're debating doctrinal points on the streets of, of London in the 1600s that most Christians today are totally ignorant of. And just show, but that was their train. They understood these things. It was important because, you know, with all the kings shifting and going from being Catholic to being Protestant and then back to, back to Catholic, if you didn't understand your theology right, you could be burned at the stake. So everybody's debating these, these points. It's a life and death matter. He said, with the Bible as its tool, the Reformation returned to the geographic origins of Christianity in Palestine. They go back to talking. Israel is Israel. It's a literal land, a literal place for the Jewish people. And it gradually diminished the authority of Rome. Barbara Tuchman, in her book, The Bible and Sword, which I have here, which is still considered the finest book on the history of the Bible in among the English people, uh, and it covers England and Palestine, it says in the subtitle, From the Bronze Age to Balfour. And she says, starting with the Puritan ascendancy, 
the movement among the English for the return of the Jews to Palestine began. That's it. She's Jewish. She's a Jewish author. She's a historian. I probably have, I don't know how many books written by her on different, different topics. She also says about the, uh, about the Puritans. They, they just fell in love with the Old Testament culture. They fell in love with Hebrew. They fell in love with the names of the people. And she says, they began to feel for the Old Testament a preference that showed itself in all their settlement sentiments and habits. They paid a respect to the Hebrew language that they refused to the language of the Gospels and of the epistles of Paul. They baptized their children with the names not of Christian saints, but of Hebrew patriarch, patriarchs and warriors. They turned the weekly festival by which the church had had from primitive times commemorated the resurrection of her Lord into the Jewish Sabbath. They sought for precedence to guide their ordinary conduct in the books of judges and kings. Now, that's important because in the 1600s, they're also dealing with, with legal issues. Where's the, what's the authority of the king? What's the authority of the people? Uh, how do you have a just government? And where are they going? They're going to Leviticus. They're going to Exodus. They're going to First uh, Samuel 8. And they're going to Deuteronomy. So this is the impact that the Bible has on all of British uh, culture at, at, at that time. So as this shift takes place, there's some initial uh, Bible scholars and Bible teachers, scholars out of Oxford, Cambridge, some other places, that begin to emphasize this restoration of the Jewish people. One of the first is a man named Francis Kett. And because he wrote in a commentary that the Jewish people would one day be restored to their national homeland, uh, among other reasons, but that was one of them. He is burned at the stake on January 15, 1589. He also had some questionable views on the Trinity, and that was part of it. So he's burned at the stake. Um, and then by the time you get into the early 1600s, the reign of James I, there is definitely the beginning of a shift. So what motivated this? First of all, uh, there is a missionary desire to provide for the conversion of Jews, which they understood from the Bible to occur at or near the time of the future establishment of the Messianic kingdom. So if Jesus, what their rationale is, isn't that if, if we evangelize them, then Jesus will come back. But they recognize that when Jesus comes back, there's a conversion, so Jews need to know the gospel. And so there is a desire for Jewish evangelism. Second, there's a humanitarian desire to provide a safe haven for the Jewish people from anti-Semitism. And remember, in 1492, when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, that King Ferdinand and Queen Isabella kicked all the Jews out of Spain. And so there's a horrible inquisition that's been going on prior to that in Spain where there's a lot of uh, torture and uh, the forcing of Jew Jews to convert to Christianity. And as they go through, leave Spain and go through Western Europe, they're faced with all kinds of anti-Semitism in France, in Germany, in other parts of, of Europe. And that's why many of them end up going all the way east to Poland because the king of Poland welcomed them. And that's why you have such a huge community of Jews in Poland when you get to the early part of the 20th century. Uh, 
But in among the evangelicals in Britain, they want to provide a safe haven for the Jewish people. There's also a desire to help with the fulfillment of prophecy. If that's what God's plan is, let's help it along. Fourth, there's a sincere love for the Jewish people. And that develops. And I'll point that out and give you a couple of illustrations of these two points, this desire to help with the fulfillment of prophecy. They're not really trying to manipulate it. They just want to cooperate with it. And then fifth, there's a nationalistic desire to see people in their historic homeland. That's what eventually develops. They, they think that the Serbians need to be in Serbia, the Germans need to be in Germany, and the Italians need to have a united, you know, and unite all their city states and have their own nation. And so if everybody else gets to have their own nations, then the Jews should have their own nation as well. So with the emphasis on the Bible, the emphasis on sola scriptura, there's the resurrection of the study of Hebrew language in the Protestant, by Protestant Christians. So pastors are going to rabbis. This, it work, this is a double-edged sword to cut both ways. But they go to rabbis to learn Hebrew. They also pick up some bad theology along the way, which impacts some other things, but that's a different story and a different lecture. Uh, there's the translation of the Bible into English, so it's in the common language of the people, and they begin to see the importance of Israel. They identify with Old Testament heroes, the struggles, the stories of the of the people, and so they they recognize the value of the Jews and the Jewish people. In terms of hermeneutics, there's a return to a literal hermeneutic, which means there's a literal future kingdom. It's going to be a Davidic kingdom. It's going to be a geopolitical kingdom. And there's going to be a restored Jewish nation. And the English Puritans saw the biblical prophecy of return of the Jews to their, to their homeland. So this sets things up for the future. And you have a number of well-known uh, theologians who at the time are promoting and teaching that there is a restoration of the Jewish people. This is developing in the early part of the 1600s. Lucian Wolf wrote a book. We'll talk about Manasseh bin Israel in a minute. He was a well-known rabbi in the Netherlands in the middle of this century. And in his introduction to his biography of Manasseh bin Israel, uh, Wolf says, and he's not, you know, he's not a Christian, he's, he's Jewish, but he's not necessarily sympathetic uh, to Christian Zionism. And he says, the Reformation in England first turned Jewish eyes toward the land from which they had been so long excluded. That's a remarkable statement for a man of his framework, his way of thinking. That it's the Christians who start talking about Jews going back to the land that gets the Jews to thinking, hey, maybe that's what we're, we're supposed to do. <clears throat> One of the early first men in the early 1600s to recognize God's plan for the Jewish people and to write about it was Sir Henry Finch. Now, we're never taught anything about Sir Henry Finch, but Sir Henry Finch was... Uh, an absolutely brilliant man. At the bottom here, I write, Finch, at the time of the publication of his book, was a member of parliament and the most hi highly respected legal scholar in England at that time. Now, earlier when I was teaching on this, I pointed out that the greatest scholar of English law 
was William Blackstone, who publishes his commentary on English law around 1750s or 1760. And everybody in America who was anybody concerned about the law or politics had their copy of Blackstone's commentaries on the laws of England. Before Blackstone, you read Finch. He is the authority on the history of English common law at the time. But in 1621, he wrote a book. He just loved the length of the titles of the books at that time. It was called The World's Resurrection or The Calling of the Jews, a present to Judah and the children of Israel that joined with him and to Joseph and all the house of Israel that joined with him. You can barely say that in one breath. And in that book, he writes, he has passages which speak of a return of these people to their own land, their conquest of enemies, and the rule of the nations, and that these are to be taken literally, not allegorically related to the church. So he's got a literal interpretation. Israel's going to return to the land, and they're going to defeat their enemies, and they are going to be the primary nation in the world. But there was a problem with that. Who's the king? The king is King James I, or King, and, and he is offended. Remember, he's the first uh, Stuart king, and he's got this whole idea that he's the, he got the divine right in what he says and what he believes is the law of the land, whatever it may be. And so he's offended by Finch's uh, statement that all the nations would be subservient to uh, Israel at the time of a restoration. He's thinking they ought to all be subservient to me. And so he has... Uh, Finch and his publisher arrested, and he is uh, stripped of his status. He's stripped of all his possessions. He is thrown in prison, uh, and he dies a few years later. He wrote that where Israel, Judah, Zion, Jerusalem, etc., are named in this argument, the Holy Ghost means not the spiritual Israel or church of God collected of the Gentiles, no, nor of the Jews and Gentiles both, for each of these have their promises severally and apart, but Israel properly descended out of Jacob's loins. Very clear, he's got a literal interpretation. So by that, that is in 1621. By 1640, the vast majority of Puritans believe in the future restoration of the Jewish people to Israel. Within the next 20 years, it just reverses itself. And so you have a whole new uh, circumstance, a whole new situation that develops. You have the birth of philosemitism. Uh, Wolf again in his book says, but it was the increasing Hebraism of English thought as represented by the Puritan movement which chiefly attracted the Jews. When the commonwealth with its pronounced Judaical tendencies emerged from this movement, that's the Puritan commonwealth under, under Cromwell, uh, the Jews could not fail to be impressed. They are so much in, in love with the Jewish people and with the Hebrew scriptures. Now, what's interesting is during this time, you have uh, a number of important names that all believe in restoration of the Jewish people to their homeland. Names you'll recognize, John Milton, John Locke, John Bunyan, Oliver Cromwell, Isaac Newton, 
all believe in a literal return of the Jewish people to their historic homeland. These are critical writers, literary names, legal names, scientists that just represent a vast number of, of, of English leaders that are all supporting the Jewish people. The 1600s in England lays this foundation for what is transported over to the colonies uh, during that particular time. So you have, remember, 1492, Spain expels the Jews. Then there are these conflicts over religious liberty in England. Then third, there's an increasing publication of restorationist ideas, along with calls to readmit the Jews to England. And then on January 5th of 1649, Johanna Cartwright and her son, Ebenezer Cartwright, bring a petition to the English Parliament. They live in the Netherlands. They live in Holland, and they are uh, basically, they're English, but they're Dutch Reformed Jews, I mean uh, Christians, and they come to bring a petition to Oliver Cromwell to readmit the Jewish people. Now, remember, they were kicked out under Edward I, and so it's been three or 400 years. There haven't been any Jews in England, or, or if they did, they kept their mouths shut. And now there is this petition motivated by Christians to bring the Jewish people back, uh, back to England. And, um, and that was all fine and good, and it was going to be accepted, and it would have made an impact, except the very next day, the High Court of Justice uh, in Parliament tried Charles I on treason, and then they executed him, and so the petition got put on the shelf for a while. So it's 1649. This is their petition of the Jews for the repealing of the Act of Parliament for their banishment out of England. And in that petition, they say, and that this nation of England with the inhabitants of the Netherlands shall be the first and readiest to transport Israel's sons and daughters in their ships to the land promised to their forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for an everlasting inheritance. So many uh, people are motivated by prophecy. They're motivated by various uh, messianic uh, prophecies. And this attracts the enthusiasm of a Dutch rabbi by the name of Manasseh bin Israel. And in 1650, now he has arrived at these conclusions on his own, separate from the, the, the Christians. And he published a book called Hope of Israel in which he advocates the return of the Jews to England as a preliminary to the appearance of the Messiah. Now, remember what I said, one of the little myths that's out there today, one of the false claims is that Jews want to, I mean, Christians want to get the Jews back to the lands to make Jesus come back. This has its origin right here with Manasseh bin Israel. He says, we want to get the Jews back to England because God said that he's not going to restore us to our homeland until we're scattered to all the nations of the earth. And if you don't have any Jews in England, God can't send us back home. So you need to let us come back to England so God will take us home. That's his rationale. Jewish rabbi, very famous, well-known rabbi in the Netherlands at that time. He had some odd ideas. He believed the Ten Laws tribes uh, 
in, uh, were the Indians in North and South America. But he believed that the Messiah would not come until the Jews were regathered. And as a result of that, that would only come about after a complete scattering and England needed to readmit the Jews so the scattering would be complete. He's really trying to manipulate God's timetable. But it's interesting that it comes from this Jewish rabbi and not not from uh, Christians. So the he brings a petition to Cromwell to readmit the Jews to England in 1655. Johanna and Ebenezer Cartwright did it six years earlier in 1649. So you see these things come together, and what Lucian Wolf says is what was it then that brought these two different characters so closely together? that the readmission of the Jews to England was one of Cromwell's own schemes. He was the mainspring of the whole movement, and Manasseh was but a puppet in his hand. So what he's saying is that, that Cromwell wanted to do this anyway. He's got the petition from the Cartwrights. He wants to do this. He's open to it. And now he can use Manasseh bin Israel to accomplish what he wanted to do altogether. And so Jews are readmitted to England. Now we're going to skip to the, what's happening in America at this time. What's happening in the, the, in the colonies at this time is that uh, many Puritans, especially in the 1640s, leading up to that period before um, Charles I was uh, uh, executed, that there were about 40 to 50,000 Puritans in that period from the 1620s, 1630s, 1640s who came to Massachusetts and other parts of, uh, of, of the colonies. And among them, they were known, um, uh, there were very famous Puritans, for example, John Cotton. And John Cotton was the foremost uh, influential Puritan minister in New England. He was post-millennial but he believed in the restoration of the Jewish people. Uh, there's also the Mather family. There are, um, there are the three generations that are significant. There is Increase Mather, who's the son of Richard Mather, who's a Puritan pastor also, and he's the fa- father of Cotton Mather. He's given a bad rap because he was involved with the Salem witch trials. Now, that's a totally different story, but there were, I mean, th- that is so blown out of proportion by um, by numerous Americans who hate Christianity and hate the Puritans that it's, it's unbelievable compared to what was going on in Spain, compared to what was going on in France and in England at the time with witch trials and burning people at the stake. There were 20, 30, 40,000 people burned at the stake in Europe. In Massachusetts, there are seven that are arrested. And I forget, but it's only one, two or three that are, that are executed. So compared to everything else going on in Western civilization, it, it didn't even make anybody's radar. It was so minimal. This guy's an absolute genius. He wrote over a hundred books in his lifetime. That's with quill and ink, folks. That's not with a typewriter. That's not with a manual typewriter. That's not even with any kind of word processor or computer. And his very first work was called The Mystery of Israel's Salvation, uh, which he took through a half a dozen revisions during his lifetime. 
and where he articulated his support of the national restoration of Israel to her land in the future. And this is typical of American colonial Puritan. Everybody read, all the preachers read Increase Mather, and they preached this from their pulpits. So from the very beginning of the, in the 1630s and 1640s, you have this pro-Jewish British restorationist belief embedded in America. That's why the United States has a history of being philo-Semitic and was open to supporting the state of Israel in 1948 because of the influence of British restorationism in the colonies in the 1600s and 1700s from the very beginning. Uh, Carl Elliott in his Ph.D. dissertation says that from that time on, the doctrine of restoration may be said to have been endemic to American culture. And when they founded universities, here's the original seal of Yale. There's Hebrew there. You have uh, here the Urim and the Thummim mentioned uh, in, on a layout of the scripture. And then you have light and truth in, in Latin, but you have Hebrew on their seal. The seal of Columbia, the founding of Columbia, it has the sacred tetragrammaton, uh, Yahweh up here at the top. And then here it says, um, Array L, which means the light of God. Uh, on the seal of, of uh, Columbia and on the seal of Dartmouth, you have El Shaddai right up here and you have a triangle here for representing uh, the Trinity. So this is the impact that, that you had from British restorationism. There's this, this love for the Jewish people, for Hebrew. It's embedded in the, uh, in the American psyche. In the 1790s, George Washington uh, went to uh, Rhode Island, where there's one of the old, I've actually visited the synagogue. One of the oldest synagogues in the nation is located in, um, uh, I think it's in Newport, Rhode Island. And there he addressed the congregation. And he says, it is now no more that toleration is spoken of as if it was by the indulgence of one class of people that another enjoy the exercise of their inherent natural rights. For happily, the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. May the children of the stock of Abraham who dwell in this land continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. So this is, this is uh, Washington. Now, there is a growing interest right at the end of the 1800s, I mean of the 1700s, for Jewish restoration. Napoleon is conquering. He goes through the Middle East. People are saying, is he the Antichrist? He's conquered Europe. Now he's going down through Egypt and the Middle East. And so there's this Focus. What does the Bible say about the, the future? So until this time, the restoration of the Jewish people was always associated with the coming of Messiah. But now they're beginning to think, well, maybe it, we don't have to have the Messiah for people to, to return. Uh, David Levy produces a three-volume work on the dissertation of the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's a Jewish author. 
But the real point I'm getting to is this guy, Mordecai Manuel Noah, who's a wealthy businessman, is doing a lot to establish a, a sort of a colony of Jews in upstate New York with, to prepare them to go to the land of Israel. And in correspondence with him, President John Adams says, I really wish the Jews again in Judea an independent nation, for as I believe the most enlightened men of it have participated in the amelioration of the philosophy of the age. So he is pro-Israel. He he's, believes that they ought to be restored to their historic homeland. And he, remember, he grew up in, in a Reformed tradition. He grew up in an Orthodox congregational church in Boston. His son, John Quincy Adams, says that he also desired that, quote, the Jews again were in Judea, an independent nation, once restored to an independent government and no longer persecuted. Now, because there's not that many Jews in America yet, and because this isn't a big, big international thing just yet, it's on the verge of it, there's not a lot said by other, uh, other American leaders. In the time of the war between the states, Abraham Lincoln meets with a Canadian Christian Zionist named Henry Monk in 1863 and says to him, Restoring the Jews to their homeland is a noble dream shared by many Americans. He, that is, he's talking about his Jewish chiropodist, that's his foot guy, his podiatrist, uh, has so many times put me on my feet that I would have no objection to giving his countrymen a leg up. So that's Lincoln. Lincoln is in favor of the Jews going back to their historic homeland. Now let's switch over to England a minute. You have this guy on the right, Anthony Ashley Cooper. He's the seventh Earl of Shaftesbury, just known as Shaftesbury, and he is highly influential. He is the prime mover and shaker in uh, ginning up uh, what is, will become Christian Zionism during this particular time. He, his, uh, he's got a close relative who is married as a second wife to Henry John Temple Palmerston, who is one of the premier politicians during this Elizabethan era from the 1830s, 40s, 50s. I think he dies around 1860. And he has, he is a favorite of Queen Victoria. Uh, he is actually Shaftesbury's, um, uh, he, he's related to Shaftesbury's mother-in-law, and so he becomes a. And so uh, uh, he, Palmerston's w- wife, died. He marries again, so that um, he marries. Uh, 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 Shaftesbury's mother-in-law remarries Palmerston after the death of her first husband, so she basically becomes Palmerston's stepson, one of those weird relationship things that's difficult to explain. Shaftesbury is known for his statement that is the land of Israel had become a land without a people for a people without a land. He wrote in 1853 that Palestine was a country without a nation in search of a nation without a country. Uh, Barbara Tuchman said that he's the most influential non-political figure except for Darwin in the Victorian age. And he also spearheaded a movement to appoint the first Jewish Christian bishop of Jerusalem. And uh, he was uh, ordained by the 
what was called the London Jew Society. Its technical name was the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel Among the Jews. And he used his power to influence Palmerston and Queen Victoria. So they install Michael Solomon as the bishop in Jerusalem. Uh, they buy some land. On that land today is Christ Church. And those of you who have been to Israel with me have been to Christ Church. And I think when we were there in 2014, we took shelter there because it was raining. So that uh, that's the connection there. Now you have an American evangelical and a dispensationalist by the name of William E. Blackstone. He wrote a prophetic book called Jesus is Coming, and it became a primary reference for dispensationalists and sold millions of copies uh, throughout the coming generations. He also put together a petition that was signed by uh, numerous people. He said um, in, in his book, he writes, Why shall not the powers which under the Treaty of Berlin in 1878 gave Bulgaria to the Bulgarians and the Serb- Serbia to the Serbs now give Palestine back to the Jews? That's, that's the mo- motivation. And so it, his petition is signed by 413 prominent Christians and a few Jewish leaders. It includes almost all the members of Congress it includes uh, uh, it includes the editors of I think uh, um, here we go it includes the editors of a number of uh, uh, major newspapers at the time. Uh, the chief justice was Melvin Fuller. He signed it. J P Morgan, J D Rockefeller, editors of the New York Times, Chicago Tribune, and about twelve or thirteen other major newspapers all signed uh, his his petition. Some years later, this is in 1891, some years later, Nathan Strauss, who is the assistant to Louis Brandeis, who is the president of the Zionist Organization of America. Louis Brandeis is later elevated to the Supreme Court by Franklin Roosevelt. And Nathan, and so he is like the top pro-Zionist in America. But Nathan Strauss writes to Blackstone on May the 16th, 1916, Mr. Brandeis agrees with me that you are the father of Zionism as your work antedates Herzl. Herzl doesn't start his promotion of Zion, uh, Jewish Zionism until five years, five years, five years later. Okay, then I'm going to cut through this really fast. The Balfour Declaration, which is motivated to protect the Jewish people. And the primary motivation was came from the religious beliefs of the war cabinet. And I'm not going to have time to go through all the people in the war cabinet, but most of the people in the war cabinet, with the exception of one Jew who voted against the Balfour Declaration, are all Christians who come from different parts of the British Empire, South Africa, Ireland, England, and all of them have the same thing in their background, that they are reared in a home where they are read the Bible and taught the Bible, and they come with a love, uh, a love for for the Jewish people. So what happens at the end of World War One? This is a map of the uh, Ottoman Empire. Look for Israel on the map. You don't find it. It is called Palestine because that's the name that uh, Hadrian, who actually was Spanish, but he was a Roman Empire. That's the name that he assigned to this territory. Okay, and because he didn't like the, the second revolt of the Jews, and he didn't like uh, the op- want to give them an opportunity to to revolt again, 
This is just, this Palestine here, it's just part of Syria. All of this is just considered Syria, and it is all part of the Ottoman Empire. And when World War I ends, they're going to have to split this territory up. Again, no Palestine anywhere in here. Uh, they're going to have to split it up. And so the Balfour Declaration was a hopeful statement of policy that the, that the, uh, His Majesty's government looked with favor on the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people. Now, that doesn't make its law. Here's a list of the people who signed it. But um, it does become law when it enters in, at, when it's entered in verbatim to the British mandate as the preamble to the British mandate when the League of Nations establishes um, the, the British mandate that the British are to oversee uh, the colony there, the Jews that are there, until uh, they can be self-governing. Now, we're going to skip ahead time-wise. It's 1948. The Jews have their, uh, are, are set free from the British mandate, and they declare themselves an independent state. And at which time President uh, Harry Truman says, this government has been informed that a Jewish state has been proclaimed in Palestine and recognition has been requested by the provisional government thereof. The United States recognizes the provisional government as the de facto authority of the new state of Israel. He recognized Israel like 15 minutes after he heard that they had established themselves. And so this is so critical. What I'm doing is tracing this that support of the Jewish people, philo-Semitism, and support of Israel is in the bloodstream, the DNA of, of the American culture. In, but after Truman, the next president is Eisenhower. Eisenhower is not so pro-Israel. You have a Sinai war with, a war with Egypt in the Sinai. He doesn't get involved. He stays on the sidelines. He doesn't want to do anything. The Russians are involved with the Egyptians. And so he doesn't want to get involved. Kennedy doesn't really do anything. And LBJ doesn't do anything. But in 1967, you have the Six-Day War in, in Israel, and, and they defeat five Arab armies. And LBJ goes, wait a minute, these people can be our allies. And so he begins the shift to support the Jewish people. The next big event that happened in, uh, in the Middle East was the Yom Kippur War of 73. And the Yom Kippur War of 73, it looks like the, the Jews are just going to take a shellacking and they're going to be defeated. Golda Meir comes to President Nixon and asks for aid, that we can't win it if you don't back us. Nixon, whose mama taught him that one day you may be in a position to support the Jewish people, you need to do it remembers what his mother told him and says, you got it. And I have been told by military guys that, that I, I know, guys I was in college with who went to, uh, Germ went to Germany right during that time, said that if the Russians had attacked the U.S. in Europe, had com come across the line there, that we would have lost everything because Nixon sent 80% of what we had in Europe to Israel to, to bail them out. This is our tradition. And really, it's between the uh, Six-Day War and the Yom Kippur War that U.S. foreign policy completely shifts to being a pro-Israel support. And so you have the rise of, uh, of, of a lot of things that come 
as a result of that. So when we look at the current political scenario, we have a president who has just completed a tremendous deal with the um, uh, United Arab Emirates and with Kuwait, and there's four or five more uh, waiting in the wings. They have not been identified, and I was on a talk with uh, Jared Kushner yesterday with APAC, and he said, I'm not telling you anything because there are too many people. Once they find out who's who's leaning towards a uh, recognizing Israel, that you know, all hell's going to break loose. So I'm not going to talk about it. But but they're there. They're they're waiting to move. Uh, that it, just you think about what President Trump has done. That is pro-Israel. He's finally, though it's been authorized by Congress for over 20 years, uh, almost 30 years. He's moved the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem. He has strengthened the ties. He has worked with uh, one of his first meetings uh, after he became president was with uh, the uh, King Abdullah of Jordan. Uh, he met not long after that, within three or four months, he met with Mahmoud Abbas, who's the president of the Palestinian Authority. He met uh, and had several phone calls with uh, Benjamin Netanyahu, and so all of these things have culminated in th- this this strategy. And so on the other hand, what do you have? You have uh, the Biden-Harris ticket, and they are all in favor of restoring everything to the, uh, to the Iran nuclear deal, the JCPOA. And as a result of that, it is their belief that, that this is somehow going to protect all of us from a nuclear Iran. But the trouble is that on that side of the aisle, they have not been consistent. They don't want to, uh, within the agreement, they're what they call snapback sanctions, initial sanctions against Iran. And if they are caught developing nuclear uh, armaments or nuclear capabilities in violation of the JCPOA, then these sanctions are going to automatically snap back in place. And so they're called the snapback sanctions. And so this has been in the news heavily the last uh, the last month because uh, evidence is out that uh, Iran is violating this left and right. They're getting closer and closer to producing a nuclear weapon. And so President Trump went to the Security Council of the U.N. and they just voted this last week. They said, no, we're not going to uh, have any snapback sanctions. And so the U.S. is pushing all of its allies to put that into effect. And uh, the U.S. is doing that. And so once it's a clear choice when it comes to just this one issue uh, alone that you have one side that is definitely doing things that support a strong Israel, support security for the state of Israel, and you have the other side that is not and that is extremely weak and that many people in that party are now aligning themselves in many different ways with the uh, Palestinians. And this last agreement, the Abrahamic Accords, uh, it's what they're calling it with, with Kuwait and the UAE, what they're coming along with is there, there's, um, uh, Trump has basically made an end run and even major th- thinkers and writers in the, uh, among Arab countries are saying he just sidelined the whole Palestinian uh, issue that that has been central for most people. And the only article that I've been able to find that has been published in the last couple of weeks that is critical of these accords came out in the Washington Post a couple of days ago, and they said there's three reasons it's bad. 
And basically, you can summarize it. It's not good for the Palestinians, it's not good for the Palestinians, and it's not good for the Palestinians. All three reasons had to do with it. it's not good for the Palestinians. And so they're, they're not, there's nothing substantive there that, that somehow this is really an inherently, uh, inherently bad thing. It's just not good for the Palestinians. They, their corruption has been recognized by the other Arab nations, and they're sick of it. So there's a lot that's going to come out of this is good. I don't think it's perfect. I think there are some security questions and other things that I have from my um, from what I've seen, read, heard. But uh, we'll find out about this uh, only as time time comes along. So I think on that issue, it's very clear uh, what the differences are that we're faced with at the polls, along with the other things that we've seen. So anyway, that's why we support Israel. And next week, I want to come back and just talk a little, talk some more about what is going on in our country. We have all of these terrible riots last night, Louisville. Uh, we've had other things going on in Seattle and in Portland and in uh, Wisconsin and Chicago and Washington, D.C. What's behind all this? We have to think logically. We have to be able to vote in, on the basis of principle, not personality. And so we'll look at these issues next time. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things. We know that you're faithful to your people, Israel. We know that that there is a time in the future when there will be a restoration, but that is only for those who are believers in Yeshua the Messiah. So, Father, we pray for them. We pray for us as we get opportunities to witness to uh, Jewish people that we know that that it can become a priority. Uh, we pray also um, for David, who was with us a couple of weeks ago, who's moving to Israel to uh, David Morris to work with uh, work over there as a, uh, an undercover missionary, as it were, and we pray for him that you would give him opportunities to present the gospel to many, many Israelis and that there would be a great harvest from that. And we pray these, pray for our country and for our strength that we will have the stability to continue to be pro, pro-Israeli, pro-Jewish, philo-Semitic, and not cave into the many new voices that are coming that are anti-Semitic. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.